This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. Government leaders face serious challenges that present many difficult choices that go to the core of effective public management. At this historically critical juncture, as the backdrop, citizen expectation remains constant to have a government that is more responsive, coordinated, transparent, and accountable. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is the country's principal agency for protecting the health of all Americans and providing essential human services, especially for those least able to help themselves. HHS is responsible for almost a quarter of all federal expenditures and administers more grant dollars than any other federal agency combined. Therefore, ensuring its programs operate efficiently and effectively is key, and HHS's Office of Inspector General plays a critical role in this area. It advances its core mission of protecting the integrity of HHS programs and the people they serve by working to prevent and detect fraud, waste, and abuse. When misconduct is identified, OIG takes appropriate enforcement action or makes recommendations to improve the department programs and its operation. What are the key priorities for HHS's Office of Inspector General? What are the top management and performance challenges facing HHS? And how does the HHS Office of Inspector General using collaboration and partnerships to enhance oversight and government performance? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Dan Levinson, Inspector General of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Dan, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you, Michael. It's wonderful to be here and be with you. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Brenda Kunkel. Brenda, welcome, as always. So, Dan, to set some context, perhaps you could outline the mission and history of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General. Well, our office is actually celebrating its 40th year in operation. We're one of the oldest inspector general offices in government. We, uh, we actually predate the Inspector General Act of 1978 that established IG offices throughout many of the cabinet departments and big agencies. We were established in 1976 uh, to combat Medicaid and Medicare fraud. And we were, then we became part of the dozen or so OIGs uh, when the 78 Act was passed. So uh, we've, uh, we've been around for, uh, for most of uh, the existence of the department. And indeed, when we were first established, it was known as the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. So going from general to specific, would you tell us more about your portfolio? How is your office organized, size of its budget, number of folks that work for you, and your geographical footprint? 
well, we are nationwide. Uh, Health and Human Services uh, is a very large department uh, financially. It is by far uh, the largest department in the executive branch. Uh, it spends now over a trillion dollars a year in expenditures. And, and uh, we follow the money. Uh, we follow where our department is doing business. So uh, we have offices in all of the federal headquarters cities around the country, as well as field offices in most of the rest of the states. So our footprint is nationwide, and we have a physical presence in nearly every state. We're about 1,600 strong now, and that's divided among a number of very important professional groups. We have auditors and accountants in our Office of Audit Services. That would be our largest group, and that's not surprising given uh, how much money uh, needs to be overseen. Uh, our next largest group would be our criminal investigators. Uh, we have several hundreds of those spread out around the United States. Uh, we have management analysts in our Office of Evaluations and Inspections, uh, over 100 uh, of those experts, uh, who many of whom hold masters in public health, some of them hold doctorates, uh, and uh, they have expertise in virtually every corner of the subject areas that, that we cover. We're the only inspector general office that literally has a law firm embedded in it, uh, we have uh, several score lawyers, uh, and again, they, they cover a very wide range of activity, and given that we also have enforcement authority, very much unlike the typical IG, uh, we have lawyers who are regularly involved in civil administrative proceedings, as well as many lawyers who are dealing on a day-to-day -day basis uh, with professional colleagues at the Department of Justice as cases are brought. Uh, we have a very, very capable executive management team that keeps uh, our infrastructure together. In terms of budget, we're about a $330 million operation now. And most of our resources, both uh, money and talent, really go to overseeing the Medicare and the Medicaid program because that's where most of the money is at HHS, of the trillion dollars or so. Over 80% of it uh, goes to Medicare and to the federal share of Medicaid. And by law, that's where we really need to focus our efforts. That said, uh, the remainder, 20% or 25% or so, needs to be devoted to all of the other <laughs> HHS programs. And uh, people know of them. They don't necessarily think of them as part of the Department of Health and Human Services. But we're also covering the Food and Drug Administration, uh, the National Institutes of Health, uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, the Administration on uh, Children and Families, uh, the Indian Health Service. I could go on to uh, probably a hundred different programs. Uh, every dollar, every part of what we do uh, needs to be overseen. It's overseen not only by us, by others as well, but we, uh, we need to think very uh, systematically about how we can do uh, the right kind of oversight job in virtually every corner of HHS. 
Great. So now that you've provided us with a sense of the organization and the mission of your office, perhaps you could tell us more about your approach to leading such a large oversight agency, and how do you view the role of the HHS OIG in the larger context of the department's mission? Well, Brenda, I think it's, it's very important when it comes to leadership to be thinking about followership, to think about what we can do best uh, to get our stakeholders uh, to follow what we are doing, what, what we are trying to accomplish. So, for example, when our investigators uh, invest their time and talent to develop the best possible cases for prosecution under the healthcare fraud statutes, uh, it's a success when the Justice Department follows uh, the cases that we have developed and brings them to prosecution. It's a success for our team. It's a a success for the Justice Department, and most importantly, a success for the taxpayer and for beneficiaries. That notion of leadership really needs to be thought of organization-wide. It's true with respect to uh, the studies and the reports that we do. Uh, Invariably, um, nearly all of our reports will carry recommendations to uh, the, the agencies within the department, most often to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services about how services can be improved, how, um, how the vulnerabilities that we have found, the perhaps weakness in internal controls can be remedied. And when we get adoption, when we get people saying, you know, OIG does have a good idea here, we need to follow their recommendations, that kind of followership comes from an organization that emphasizes leadership at every stage of the process and at every level of the organization. I don't think of us as 1,600 employees vertically arranged by rank. I think of 1,600 peer professionals who are working cooperatively uh, to come up with the best possible products, whether they're audits, whether they're uh, evaluation reports, whether these are criminal cases, uh, all of our professionals are working corporately uh, to provide the best possible product that will bring on uh, the kind of adoption that we're looking for in our agencies, within the department, uh, by prosecutors around the country and in Maine Justice. And when Congress asks asks for technical assistance considering proposed legislation in our area and they say, IG, the OIG has a good idea here, let's incorporate their suggestions into our legislation, that's the kind of followership that we we want to see happen. Mm -hmm. That's great. So, you know, Dan, what are your, say, top three management challenges that you've faced in your position and how have you sought to address those challenges? Well, Michael, in the broadest sense of the term, I would say that the three challenges can be, uh, can be viewed in terms of the scale, uh, the complexity, and the change that's going on within the department. Uh, scale, you won't be surprised with a uh, trillion-dollar expenditures and with, uh, with programs as large as Medicare and Medicaid delivering benefits uh, to uh, more than one-third of the American population. We deal with very, very large numbers. 
uh, notwithstanding that the benefits involved impact people in a very individual, very personal, very intimate way. So we have to deal with, uh, with scale at uh, a level that uh, rarely exists, either in the public or the private sector. And uh, how we do that has, uh, has a lot to do with whether we'll be able to effectively exercise the kind of oversight responsibility uh, that we have. The complexity uh, has to do with the, with the fact that the department is delivering um, program benefits and services that, are, um, that can be uh, very complicated in form and in delivery. Um, healthcare is not like widgets. It's a very sophisticated exercise in many respects, and it deals with areas of ambiguity, um, areas of highly technical expertise, and that kind of complexity adds to the challenge in being able to do appropriate oversight. So we need to be prepared to deal with that and to bring to bear the right kind of expertise or the right kind of knowledge that will help us locate the expertise so that we can deal, deal with the many complex issues uh, that we have in our area. And the third is this notion of change. Uh, healthcare especially is going through a, uh, a, a change of era uh, as we bring on board big data, uh, the technology that's going to allow us to navigate uh, in, in a world where we can uh, deliver better health care to a larger population and be able to account for that effectively. That all really depends upon developing a highly functioning, reliable, a system of health information technology that is very impactful and that does all the right things and avoids all the wrong things like uh, breaches of confidentiality, privacy, issues concerning security. Can we reliably get timely data delivered the right way without uh, violating either privacy or security concerns? And we need to do it in a very fast-paced way because technology, as we know, uh, changes very, very quickly these days. And it is, uh, it is really in the midst of still maturing. So we, uh, we all have a challenge, uh, not just within OIG, but uh, all of the industry, all providers, and the Congress as we continue to try to um, modernize our system of being able to incorporate uh, data in a way that delivers what it promises. So along with the challenges you've encountered, leading the effort under your charge is, can be fraught with unexpected surprises. So to that end, what has surprised you most during your time as the HHS IG? Well, I've been in office now for over a decade, and I, uh, I continue to be uh, surprised at the breadth of expertise that's required uh, in order uh, for us to do uh, a truly effective job in oversight of a, of a department as large and complex as HHS. So uh, this really requires thinking about the, uh, the staffing that we need to do. Uh, over the course of my tenure, we have uh, brought on board a chief medical officer because although we do rely on a lot of third-party medical review, when there are questions about uh, whether billing is appropriate under certain circumstances, we also need to have in-house 
a better, uh, more sophisticated understanding of quality health care because this is not just – this is money, but it's not only money. It's also a question of uh, – quality of care, avoiding patient harm, being able to understand uh, the medical side of the equation. Having a chief medical officer is very, very important. Uh, we've also brought on board a chief data officer. As, as we know, uh, with, uh, with IT uh, being as, uh, as challenging as it is, you really need the best possible talent to be able to navigate this new world. And uh, that, that has been a very important, very important addition. We also have brought on recently a chief healthcare economist uh, because uh, we, uh, as well as fighting fraud, well, we also need to look at ways of how to promote economy, efficiency, and effectiveness in our nation's federal healthcare programs. And in order to do that uh, in a way that takes into account all of the factors uh, that go into our um, our healthcare system, we need to understand the underlying economics of what's going on in the marketplace and how we impact it, and how we can uh, recommend policies that will improve these these programs in terms of getting the the maximum benefit for the public dollar. Uh, these are just some examples of the kinds of expertise that historically we didn't have in our office, but now form a very essential collection of talent. And when I say talent, we've brought on board people with the most outstanding credentials and experience who can, who can really uh, assist greatly our existing talent and deep expertise in auditing and accounting, in management analysis, in law, in criminal investigations, uh, so that we're able to do this effectively as a coordinated uh, corporate team. Uh, and uh, it has been surprising to me how much we've had to focus on these, uh, what would have been tangential areas in the past. Interesting. So, Dan, you mentioned that you have been HHS Inspector General for about 10 years. Can you tell us more about your career path and how you got to your current leadership role? Well, Michael, actually, I, uh, I was an employment lawyer uh, uh, the first half of my career um, and uh, wound up at HHS only early in this century. Uh, I've got a few years on me. I've got a bit of mileage here. Uh, but I, it turns out that it's all, I think, uh, it all has been helpful uh, in, my, in my current role uh, because whether I was involved in employment law or more recently, I was initially IG at General Services Administration uh, in the 2001 through 2005. Uh, whether it was in uh, the labor law area or healthcare, I, I, I've been involved more often than not in government infrastructure, in, in issues that concern how government works, how government should work. And I think all of that has really contributed enormously to uh, my ability, I think, to assist our office uh, in being able to maximize the talents that we have here. Government is complicated. And uh, one of the most complicated titles of the United States Code happens to be Title V, which is where 
the Inspector General Act is located and most of the agencies that help run the day-to-day operations of government. And uh, experts have said that uh, along with the tax code and, for that matter, the public health and welfare statutes, uh, these are the most complex laws on the books. And uh, it, it helps to be able to have a background in that area uh, in an inspector general's office because if IG personnel are expert at anything, they're, they're really experts in government, government process, how government should work. And uh, then you build from there uh, to get the right kind of subject matter expertise. And that, t- that, that, that sounds like it takes a lot of leadership. And so given your experience, what makes, what are the characteristics of an effective leader? Well, I said earlier to a question from Brenda that I thought that followership is a very, very important concept. And it's the, this is not something that uh, I have been the only one talking about. There really is, I think, an emerging interest and press, really, by a number of academic uh, people, too, in the, in the so-called leadership industry about the importance of understanding that uh, – It's one thing to declare yourself a leader, but the whole notion of the great person theory of of leadership is is overdone. Uh, The important thing is uh, what are you trying to accomplish organizationally? Uh, And that necessarily requires people to think, well, who are you trying to get to follow you? And in that respect, I think leadership for an, an inspector general's office like ours, which really does comprise 1,600 highly capable professionals, leadership is a shared responsibility. So I think of myself as one of 1,600 who are trying to get, as I said earlier, agents, the, the agencies the Congress, the Justice Department, everyone else to, as much as possible, uh, follow our thinking in how we go about doing our work and coming to conclusions that are favorable to the kinds of things that we think are most important to adopt on behalf of beneficiaries, recipients, taxpayers. We are in, I think, the enviable position of fighting the good fight and therefore, it's very rewarding to think that the more, as a, as a team, we're able to convince uh, our stakeholders that we may have a good idea, a better idea, maybe the best idea. We feel that it's, yes, it's an OIG win, but it's a win for all the right reasons and all the right people benefit. So I, I think this underscoring of leadership as a shared responsibility, I think is critical uh, for uh, people in positions of authority uh, to think about uh, when they're trying to accomplish anything these days in what has truly become a knowledge economy. What are the key priorities for HHS's Office of Inspector General? We will ask Dan Levinson, Inspector General of HHS, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The 
latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What are the IT priorities for the U.S. Department of the Navy? How is the Navy leveraging mobility solutions? What is the U.S. Navy doing to enhance its IT security? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Rob Foster, Chief Information Officer, U.S. Department of the Navy. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dan Levinson, Inspector General of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Brenda Kunkel. So, uh, Dan, your office strives to reduce fraud, waste, and abuse across all HHS programs by conducting audits, investigations, and evaluations. So to that end, would you outline your strategic vision and key priorities for your office? Sure, Michael. Uh, I think it's useful to understand that each of our components really views our portfolio uh, from the standpoint of the expertise that they need to bring to bear. And and uh, let me give you an example of our Office of Investigations. We have uh, hundreds of very, very qualified investigators who bring uh, very impressive law enforcement backgrounds. And they, they, they need to bring all of that expertise to bear on a, just an extremely diverse portfolio. Uh, to give an example, in fighting healthcare fraud, uh, we see uh, an incredible variety of, of schemes that need to be tackled. And uh, it starts with uh, what I would really call more like street crime. Uh, when I first came on board down in South Florida, for example, uh, the programs were bleeding big money because of phony storefronts selling durable medical equipment, infusion therapy, you know, the kinds of scams that... Uh, involve people who are not healthcare providers, they're, they're masquerading as healthcare providers, costing the program billions of dollars because they were able uh, to get uh, billing numbers. And um, you know, just based on the historic problem of too much relaxation in the enrollment process, uh, we formed Strike Force uh, in South Florida, and the Strike Force model has worked, has worked well. Uh, but working with our law enforcement partners, both at the federal and the state level, uh, the billings in these kinds of phony scams have declined tremendously, uh, saving taxpayer dollars in the billions of dollars range. And we brought many of these uh, phony fraudsters to justice uh, over the last few years as well. And now a lot of these uh, street-level kinds of crimes, uh, you know, when, when you shut down some, uh, you wind up with others uh, because they, they, they tend to migrate where they think there might be vulnerabilities, where there's big money. So sometimes, you know, you, we might go from DME uh, to home health uh, or to personal care services. But as the migration happens, uh, we become also a, a more nimble, sophisticated team working cooperatively with law enforcement at all the levels. Uh, 
So, I mean, they have to deal with that kind of, of problem. They also have to deal with problems of healthcare providers. Uh, recently, uh, we brought to justice a doctor in Michigan uh, who was giving chemotherapy to scores of his patients who didn't suffer from cancer, devastating the lives of, of scores of these, of, of these patients. Um, he's uh, safe and secure in prison now. Um, uh, it's, it's a good example of being able to use uh, the hotline, being able to use uh, the, the kinds of uh, uh, street news that you can get, uh, keeping your ear to the ground, having boots on the ground that can actually respond when we hear that those kinds of nefarious schemes are going on among uh, what are supposed to be healthcare professionals. So they have to deal with the, the potential frauds committed by providers, doctors, sometimes working in tandem with nurses and other healthcare professionals, as well as at times beneficiaries. And these, these problems can go right up to the executive suite. Uh, we've dealt with a number of major pharmaceutical companies in cases concerning off-label marketing, pricing scams uh, for our programs. And, uh, you know, that means bringing white-collar executives to justice for trying to perpetrate frauds on our public health programs. So whether it's the street, whether it's healthcare providers themselves, whether it's executives in large, uh, in large companies within the healthcare industry, uh, whether it's beneficiaries at times or uh, people within the Health and Human Services Department itself, it's, it's a rare occurrence, uh, but there are vulnerabilities. There's possible exposure in a 360-degree way. And so uh, our investigations office has to have eyes in back of their heads practically. They do a remarkable job. We have recoveries of billions of dollars uh, over, the, over these last few years, and our return on investment is, uh, is very impressive. Uh, we get many dollars back to the taxpayer for every dollar that's invested in OIG. Our auditors and our evaluators um, and our criminal investigators are, are really leading the way in being able to point to a more effective and efficient healthcare system. So, Dan, what are the key internal and perhaps external drivers and trends that have shaped and informed your strategy? Well, we've talked, Michael, about data, uh, data analysis, uh, the importance of being able to navigate data in a world now in which we're really relying upon computer uh, technology uh, to be able to give us a much better handle on, on um, being able to, uh, to perform healthcare uh, for uh, a larger population in a way that really improves outcomes. Uh, this is part and parcel of a revolution that's going on in the delivery and payment of healthcare throughout the, the nation's healthcare system. And when I say throughout, I mean both public and, 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 and private. Healthcare is simply uh, viewed differently uh, than it was in the 20th century. Uh, we now are thinking much more um, about being able to integrate the life sciences and the social sciences and provide better health care to populations. Uh, we now have a better understanding uh, that there are many life choices that go into improving health care. And especially when you're dealing with programs that are focused on the elderly and on the disadvantaged, it's crucially important to understand 
uh, from a variety of these perspectives what goes in to investing appropriately in improving the health care of the nation's population, and especially with respect to these cohorts. So as we bring on to the national platform uh, new ways of delivering and paying for health care that no longer are based on the traditional fee-for-service system, where you simply bill uh, for a, a particular practice or service, essentially a volume-based uh, view of health care. As we move from volume to what we call value, to being able to demonstrate that the money invested uh, in health care actually results in improved outcomes for individuals, um, the way of being able to compensate professionals for that and come up with systems where we can monitor true value and be able to align value with the money spent is an enormous challenge for policymakers, for the healthcare professions generally, and for us in being able to oversee this transition from fee-for-service uh, to uh, accountable care or, or organizations and uh, these, these, these new designs in coordinated payments. So that is what we're very much focused on, and we try to be uh, good partners uh, with the policymakers who are really on the ground trying to make this happen. So we, when the occasion is appropriate, we work with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services as they design new ways of providing health care and work with us to ensure that we've built in the appropriate internal controls, uh, that we have, uh, that we've really thought through how to ensure that we can account uh, for money in these new ways of being able to pay for health care. That's a broad area of impact, and given finite resources, in evaluating potential projects to undertake, could you elaborate on the factors that go into deciding those projects and setting your priorities for the year? Well, Brenda, we, in many cases, we really have to do what is mandated by law in terms of our uh, OIG reviews. Uh, Congress sets forth a, a number of directives to us about what we're going to review. And over the course of a typical year, uh, we'll also get uh, requests from uh, members of Congress. Uh, we'll get requests from HHS management. Uh, we'll get requests from the Office of Management and Budget to focus on certain issues in the department as well. Uh, we also certainly want to work in a, a, a complementary way with GAO because GAO is really our sister oversight agency in the legislative branch. And what GAO is looking at um, is not necessarily the th kind of thing that we should be looking at uh, for fear of duplicating services, which we really shouldn't do. So we, we think in terms of what the GAO portfolio for HHS looks like at any given time, and, and we try to compare that with ours. Um, we want to make sure that we're having maximum impact. And as you can well imagine, uh, although 1,600 people comprises a very large inspector general's office, uh, I don't believe there's a government OIG that's larger than ours. Uh, from a uh, departmental perspective, it's a very modest size organization. There are, in truth, only 1,600 people for a trillion-dollar portfolio. So we really do need to think both in terms of where we can focus on 
uh, the maximum positive impact in how uh, we try to select uh, what is best for our office to focus on and how we can work very horizontally uh, with our oversight partners uh, to cover as much territory as we can so that there's no area that's left untouched. So if someone wanted to gain an understanding of how OIG's priorities have changed over the years, how would you suggest they go about doing that? Well, Brenda, I don't think there's any resource that would be better than our website. Uh, We have uh, some wonderful experts in how to present information on the web, and they have done a remarkable job of of giving the public uh, a website that can be navigated easily and uh, is is very worthwhile in how it presents uh, so much useful information uh, in a a very easy-to-navigate way. Uh, We we issue many important publications uh, that can be followed on the web. Uh, We have our semi-annual report to the Congress that appears. We have our compendium of unimplemented recommendations where we highlight the important recommendations that we've made but the department has yet to address. We post our top management and performance challenges the challenges that we view as facing HHS most important to be, uh, to be addressed. We post our work plan. We provide uh, information on our reports. We have our most wanted list. So if you, uh, you want to know who's on the, uh, the top list in terms of uh, the people we're looking for who we believe have committed serious health care fraud, it's all on the website. And very importantly, we have a lot of very, very useful compliance tools. We work as much as we can with the healthcare industry to uh, provide useful materials so that they uh, can do the best possible job in complying with what is admittedly a very large and uh, in many cases detailed set of rules, regulations, guidance, how they can best do that is, uh, is left to them. But what we try to do uh, through a variety of different materials, everything from uh, written material to podcasts, is that we provide very useful guides for being able to come up with the most effective kinds of compliance plans and uh, compliance operations for their particular industry. So we have compliance program guidance for hospitals, for nursing homes, for the pharmaceutical industry, you name it. We have very detailed guidance that is easily accessible through our website. Uh, Dan, through some of our conversation, you've kind of alluded to some of the top management performance challenges facing the department. Perhaps you could briefly identify some of those for us. Uh, Sure, Michael. Uh, Every every year, as every IG is supposed to do, we do issue top management challenges. This is uh, a process that goes back, uh, again, now about a a decade and a half. And uh, we have... uh, produced about 10 or 11 of these top management challenges for a number of years. Uh, A number of them uh, relate to what has been said before, but again, because of the dynamic change going on uh, in our programs in the department, 
Um, these, these are big subjects that never completely go away, but uh, sometimes need uh, a fresh view or a different nuance in being able to understand where we are at any given time. So this includes protecting uh, an expanding Medicaid program from fraud, waste, and abuse. Uh, it includes uh, the meaningful and secure exchange and use of electronic information and health information technology. Uh, it includes ensuring the appropriate use of prescription drugs, reforming delivery and payment in healthcare programs, as I alluded to earlier, and uh, effectively operating public health and human services programs. We, I, I add that to note that although most of our time and resources are spent on Medicare and Medicaid, uh, we also have a growing portfolio of very important work in the other programs that comprise the department. How does HHS's Inspector General use collaboration and partnership to enhance oversight and government performance? We will ask Dan Levinson, Inspector General of HHS, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine. And with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dan Levinson, Inspector General of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Brenda Kunkel. So, Dan, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the areas in which uh, HHS faces some challenges? Uh, for example, let's talk about delivery and payment reform in health care programs. Well, in this area, Michael, uh, things have really sped up since the passage of the Affordable Care Act back in 2010. This is, uh, at least for the public sector, a, a very, a very significant landmark in making the transition from fee-for-service to these new kinds of systems where we're moving from volume uh, to value. And as we do so, this raises all kinds of challenges with respect to the implementation, the operation, and the oversight ch uh, challenges for, for the department. Now, as an office, we have a lot of experience identifying vulnerabilities in the fee-for-service system. As I mentioned earlier, there's, there are billions of dollars of improper payments. Uh, so we, we know that we've had uh, all kinds of, uh, of problems that we, we've tried to overcome with, uh, in effect, the traditional system. We hope to avoid those, but we don't want to, um, in exchange, uh, wind up with a whole set of, of, of new issues. And the, um, the challenge here fundamentally is the shift uh, 
uh, from uh, a system that very much favored uh, arm's length transactions between providers in order to uh, avoid, um, you know, we're in the field of insurance and moral hazard. We, we don't want to encourage unnecessary billing. But the old system of basically paying for the more, the more procedures you do, the more money you make, um, that, that kind of system uh, we, in, in part, policed by uh, insisting that providers keep arm's length uh, between one another so that there is no incentive for people to collude in ways that would unnecessarily drive up costs. Well, in this new system in which we're trying to think about how we coordinate care, the paradigm shift is going from arm's length to bringing everybody under the tent, so to speak, and trying to create a, a, a more cooperative way of bringing providers in, in these different areas together uh, to deliver a more comprehensive, a more holistic approach to healthcare. Uh, because uh, both the life science and the social science uh, suggests that we're going to get better outcomes for more people if we can think about integrating our medical care with our health care and perhaps with our social service programs as well. Well, that's all well and good. And if that indeed is, is the promise, then we all need to work to help deliver on that promise. And what we try to do in the Inspector General's office is uh, to play our part in thinking through with our program officials how we can, can, how we can make that, re that promise happen, how we can make it a reality, um, while avoiding the potential pitfalls that not being able to account for dollar for dollar through um, the old fee-for-service system at least had the capacity at times to do. Uh, so we, we want to build in the right kind of internal controls. Um, you know, because we're making this move uh, from fee-for-service to these coordinated care models, many of the models are including waivers of our uh, anti-fraud statutes, like the anti-kickback statute, the physician self-referral law, uh, the prohibition on giving inducements to beneficiaries. Um, we're waiving, the, the, the programs are waiving some of those laws uh, so that providers can provide, in certain instances, incentives to beneficiaries to get them to do, quote unquote, the right thing. Uh, we're, we're waiving the anti-kickback statute so that providers themselves uh, can divvy up uh, the, the payments in a way that acknowledge their contribution to a to to a, a larger whole. Well, again, that 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 is there is the promise there of being able to do a better job, but there's also the vulnerability of dollars potentially being lost if the system can be gamed. So we want to protect the public dollar while at the same time delivering on the promise of better health care, and that is that is a significant challenge that really requires, I think, the kinds of, of broad expertise that we've brought in to OIG so that we can understand this from a variety of different perspectives and bring everybody together around the table and say, how can we do the best possible job 
uh, for the taxpayer, for the beneficiary, for the recipient. And earlier you mentioned an expanding Medicaid program. Why is OIG focused on Medicaid? Medicaid has become a much larger program uh, than it was historically. But in light of the problems with the economy, uh, you know, post-2008 and the expansion of the Medicaid dollars that was approved as part of the Recovery Act, uh, we had a significant uptick in the number of Medicaid recipients. And then the Affordable Care Act also expanded the Medicaid program and uh, made it much more of a, of a health insurance program as opposed to an assistance program. It's now become much more a part of the health insurance landscape. And we're, we're looking now at uh, uh, over 72 million Americans uh, having the benefit of Medicaid programs. Uh, that's nearly one in four of every American's. It is a very, very large footprint when it comes to the $3 trillion national health care economy. And effectively administering the, the Medicaid program really takes on a heightened urgency uh, as the program continues to expand on, under the Affordable Care Act and, and with these significant uh, efforts to modernize the program and to do it in ways that are different to a certain degree from state to state. As you may know, the Medicaid program is not one program, it's 51 programs. And it is a shared responsibility of the federal and state government. So we, uh, we really need to think in terms of how the Medicaid programs are working in their various ways, uh, the way in which people are thinking more and more about uh, how you can deliver care, perhaps through telemedicine, through managing patient populations. Managed care, for example, has become a much more significant part of the Medicaid program in the last few years. And uh, whatever benefits uh, these kinds of management programs bring, it sometimes makes the ability uh, to follow the money, to understand the billing, very opaque, uh, so that our auditors, our investigators, are challenged to be able to really know how that federal dollar devoted to Medicaid is actually being spent. So th these, are, these are big challenges, uh, I think, for the department, and they're significant challenges for OIG to be able to do uh, the best possible job in our oversight responsibilities. So, uh, Dan, why are you focused on electronic health information and particularly health information technology? Well, health information technology really is um, so crucial uh, to being able to navigate the healthcare system in, in, in today's world. The electronic health records uh, now offer the opportunity for improved patient care. Um, they should provide more efficient practice management. And uh, the promise is to improve overall public health. Uh, health information technology is viewed very much as the key uh, to making this paradigm shift in delivery and payment succeed. The challenge here is that uh, there's a lot of sensitive information, obviously, that is going across the wires or in wireless just going across the airwaves. You need to make sure that you've leveraged the data, that it's complete and accurate and timely, but you, and you also need to make sure that it's secure uh, you know, so that it doesn't become the target of cyber criminals. 
We have read uh, about breaches the, in, the, in the private sector, and uh, breaches can occur in virtually any part of our healthcare economy, and that raises harms that are both financial and potentially physical. You know, once you're in the, in the realm of healthcare uh, technology, you're talking about money, but you're talking about more than money. And people can physically be harmed uh, by the kinds of, uh, of frauds that uh, can be committed uh, in the realm of, of, health, of, of health information technology. So we're very focused on being able to get the best possible systems in place that will deliver what they're supposed to deliver and avoid these kinds of harms. So uh, I have in my office a senior counsel for information technology, and he is a vital, vital uh, counsel, uh, not just to me, um, but to all of our managers and executives as we think through how we're going to be able to do the kind of oversight that will reveal where the vulnerabilities are and then help navigate program officials uh, through these difficulties so that we can come up with systems that, uh, that actually perform. We've talked a lot about Medicare and Medicaid, but you also mentioned public health and human services programs. Can you talk about those for a bit? Yes, Brenda. The, uh, we have very, very large programs at HHS that are completely separate uh, from CMS, from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, the, the Administration for Children and Families, uh, which deals with uh, children in foster care, uh, child care and development fund. Uh, we deal with, uh, we do oversight of the Indian Health Service. Uh, and uh, the funds uh, that are devoted to these programs, it's, it's vitally important that they uh, be effectively managed uh, so that they can meet their goals and best serve the intended beneficiaries. Um, the Indian Health Service, for example, operates 28 acute care hospitals that, that provide free inpatient care to eligible American Indians and Alaska Natives. Um, it's interesting because we don't necessarily think of HHS as actually delivering care, um, but the, uh, the, the public uh, health service, uh, a very dedicated core of healthcare professionals, does actually deliver care in these instances. And we're looking at how the Indian Health Service uh, is monitoring and overseeing those hospitals. We plan to describe the challenges affecting these hospitals and their ability to provide quality care and comply with Medicare standards. We view this as a really important part of our mission, uh, even though uh, it is uh, in terms of, you know, by a percentage of our resource, it is a, it is a much smaller part of our portfolio. So, Dan, I talked to many of our guests about the use of collaboration and partnerships among agencies and with the private sector to achieve mission results. Uh, would you tell us how you're leveraging partnerships to improve operations and outcomes? And to what extent can collaboration and partnerships enhance oversight and government performance? Well, Michael, I think this is actually a very, very crucial part of how we need to do business and we hope others do business. Unfortunately, they, they do business with us. And uh, we think of the collaboration that's necessary just within our own department, with our own program officials. Uh, we often provide technical assistance to, to our agencies on program integrity matters. 
And uh, that allows them to consider program integrity as their designing programs and to prevent some of the, of the frauds and waste uh, from happening in the first instance. Uh, we also collaborate with agencies beyond HHS where issues are cross-cutting. So a great example of that is in the area of the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, known as PEPFAR, uh, in which we coordinate an oversight plan uh, with USAID, OIG, and the Department of State, OIG, and our auditors travel to South and East Africa and to Asia and work with our OIG partners in being able to audit these precious funds to make sure they're being used appropriately. Uh, another very good example is how we, uh, we partner with uh, the public and private parties, both law enforcement as well as insurers, in participating in the Healthcare Fraud Prevention Partnership. Together, we're able to use data and analytic tools to proactively address a healthcare for fraud. And, and from what we're hearing from the partnership, uh, these kinds of cooperative efforts are making a significant difference. What is it uh, about public service that you find the most rewarding? And what advice would you give someone who's considering a career in public service? Well, Michael, I, I think that uh, what is especially rewarding uh, about, about these jobs is how meaningful it, it is. Um, you know, not every day goes perfectly, but I have never gone home uh, thinking that, uh, um, you know, w- what am I doing here? Why am I uh, devoting the time that I do uh, to this job? These programs are important to our nation. And uh, being able to work with such, Im- such dedicated professionals as we have in our office, it's always a meaningful day. Whether the day, the day has gone well or not, it, it brings a tremendous uh, psychological rewards, uh, the sense that you're, you're working with others to make a difference. And for those who want to do this kind of work, I think the important thing is perseverance uh, because government, in, in many respects, does not work as quickly as we would hope or it should. Uh, so for those who are interested in this, it really does require a lot of perseverance and a lot of interest in working with others uh, to make these things happen. I've talked about collaboration and, and about partnership. It's not just partnership within our office, which is important, but we deal with, uh, we deal with people in the department in Congress, in the industry. We view them as important partners in being able to protect the public fisc and to provide you know, quality health care. And when you feel like you're making progress in this area, and I believe that we have contributed significantly to progress, uh, it, is, uh, it, it is very, very rewarding. Great, Dan. Thanks again for your time. But more importantly, Brenda and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Michael, Brenda, thank you so very much for the opportunity to, uh, to be with you. And uh, please look forward this fall to uh, our top management challenges as they're issued and our work plan. Uh, we're looking at a very, very exciting future. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dan Levinson, Inspector General of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. My co-host from IBM has been Brenda Kunkel. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.
What are the IT priorities for the U.S. Department of the Navy? How is the Navy leveraging mobility solutions? What is the U.S. Navy doing to enhance its IT security? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Rob Foster, Chief Information Officer, U.S. Department of the Navy. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m.